Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, news about the Swift Observatory, which in happier days observed the tidal disruption of a star by a black hole. And China's new five-year space plan. Stephen Hobbs of the University of New South Wales describes how he does hands-off fieldwork. The European Space Agency previews its plans for 2022. I chat with Naveen Kodakara of RMIT University about mapping the ionosphere. And in episode 30 of our Space Show Planet Earth series, we examine the Tropics mission. Well, next up, we have Space Show News. Late last week, the team operating the Niels Garrels Swift Observatory satellite confirmed that a failed reaction wheel caused the spacecraft to enter safe mode on January the 18th. The team believes the issue is mechanical. They are moving to configure the spacecraft to operate using the five other reaction wheels, which are performing as expected. Now, it is expected that SWIFT will be returned to operation sometime this week. The reaction wheels are used to quickly point the telescope to new sources of gamma rays. Now, SWIFT is 17 years old, so it is not surprising that one of its spinning wheels has failed. And we have a report from the Goddard Space Flight Center. In 2011, NASA's SWIFT satellite caught an X-ray outburst from a small galaxy 3.8 billion light-years away. Within a couple of days, researchers realized they were witnessing the aftermath of a tidal disruption event, a star ripped apart by the monster black hole at the galaxy's center. Some of the stellar material fell toward the black hole, forming an accretion disk and a jet pointed in our direction. Tidal disruption events offer us this rare view at the most common kind of supermassive black hole in the universe, these so-called dormant supermassive black holes. 90% of black holes in the universe don't have a lot of hot material orbiting around them. They don't form these accretion disks, and so we can't observe them. Tidal disruption events where the stellar debris causes the formation of a temporary accretion disk offers us a way to probe this population of supermassive black holes. SWIFT monitored the outburst's progress and was joined by the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton Observatory and the Japanese Suzaku satellite. Recently, astronomers introduced a new analysis technique that for the first time allows them to peer deep into the gravitational well of a normally quiescent black hole. Called X-ray reverberation mapping, the method charts the region close to the black hole using light echoes from X-ray flashes, similar to the way sonar uses sound to map the ocean floor. X-ray reverberation mapping has been very successful at probing the accretion flow in well-established accretion disk structures. 
but had never been used to look at tidal disruption events. My collaborator at the University of Maryland and I were having lunch one day and she says, has anyone ever looked at tidal disruption events with x-ray reverberation mapping? That night I stayed late at the office and just tried it out on this data from Swift J1644 and much to my surprise the result was amazing and I could see that we were looking at the structure of the inner accretion flow around a normally dormant black hole for the first time. It's not like a normal accretion flow in an active galaxy that's a flat disk. This is something that is extremely puffy, very turbulent, and we are measuring flashes of X-ray emission deep within this newly formed accretion disk. Stellar material streamed into the developing disk, churning it into a thick, chaotic whirlpool of X-ray emitting gas, funneling toward the central black hole. Deep inside this cavity, multiple X-ray flares erupted, providing a flash that echoed throughout the region. Previously, astronomers had thought that the X-ray emission is coming from far out in a jet. But what we're finding with these observations is that the X-ray emission is coming from flares very close to the supermassive black hole. And we can use these observations to probe properties of the black hole itself. For instance, we found that the mass of the black hole is something on the order of a million times the mass of the sun. The first observations of X-ray reverberations from deep inside an accretion disk are providing new insights into a rarely observed class of black holes. They're also laying the groundwork for a better understanding of tidal disruption events and the black holes they illuminate. And that report from uh, Happier Times with the Swift Observatory. Let's hope they get it working again. In China, they have launched, uh, or rather released, on January the 28th, the fifth space five-year plan. This was done by the State Council Information Office. Now, the uh, plan is divided into um, several parts, and in addition to looking forward to the next five years, it also looks back on the past five years. So in terms of space transport system, in other words, <laughs> rockets to you and me, uh, from 2016 to the end of 2021, China completed 207 launch missions. Of these, 183 were by Long March rockets, with a success rate of 96.7%. Now, Long March rockets are being upgraded towards non-toxic and pollution-free exhausts. Commercial launch vehicles have entered service. Successful demonstration flight tests on reusable launch vehicles have been carried out. In the next five years, China will continue to improve the capacity and performance of its space transportation system. This will include a new generation manned rocket. Satellite remote sensing is another topic discussed in the five-year plan. The China High Resolution Earth Observing System has been largely completed using satellites for remote sensing and environmental disaster management. More than 100 million images have been delivered. 
Ocean observations are being made around the globe by the Haiyang satellites. And the Feng Yang satellites observe the global atmosphere for meteorological prediction and disaster monitoring. In the area of satellite communications, the Zhongxing satellites ensure the uninterrupted, stable broadcasting and television services. Other satellites are able to relay data at 50 gigabits per second. The Tiantong series of satellites provide mobile communications to handheld terminals to users in China and certain parts of the Asia-Pacific. In satellite navigation, the 30-satellite Beidou navigation satellite system is now complete and has the capacity to serve the world. This includes positioning, navigation, timing, global search and rescue, and short message communication. In the next five years, the Beidou system will be improved. The development of Beidou has been coordinated with the United States' Navstar Global Positioning System, Russia's GLONASS system, and Europe's Galileo system. The aim is to make all four systems compatible and interoperable. Now to manned spaceflight. China has made solid steps in construction of its space station, which has already been occupied by crews of Jiangsu-12 and Jiangsu-13. In the near future, China will launch the Wentian and Mengtian experimental modules, the Zuntian space telescope, and further Shenzhou manned spacecraft and Tianzhu cargo craft. When the space station is complete, astronauts will conduct long-term assignments. China will, in the next five years, continue studies and research on the plan for a human lunar landing. To this end, a new generation manned spacecraft will be developed. Key technologies to lay a foundation for exploring and developing cislunar space will be researched. Now, going Further afield, the Lunar and Planetary uh, aims of China in the next five years. China will continue to do lunar and planetary exploration. The Chang'e 6 lunar probe will collect and bring back samples from the polar region of the Moon. The Chang'e 7 will be launched to perform a precise landing in the Moon's polar regions and make a hopping exploration in the permanently shadowed area. The Chang'e 7 operation will be coordinated with Russia's Lunar Resource 1 orbiter mission. And this will give data on the water distribution of the Moon. Remember that uh, we think there's uh, water not liquid water, but um, solid water, ice, on at least the South Pole and probably, probably the North Pole of the Moon. Now, research and development of key technology required for the Chang'e 8 lunar mission will be carried out starting in 2025 for a launch in 2030. China will also work with other countries to build an international research station on the Moon. In the next five years, China will launch asteroid probes to sample near-Earth asteroids and probe main-belt comets. 
Also in the five-year plan is the completion of key technological research on Mars sampling and return. Now this sounds like an actual Mars sampling mission is at least five years away. Now exploration of the Jupiter system is also in China's five-year plan. In the area of space physics, in the next five years, China will launch a satellite for space gravitational wave detection. This, uh, or rather to this end, the Taiji-1 and the Tianquin-1 satellites have already been launched to support the program. An advanced space-based solar observatory will also be launched, as will a high-precision magnetic field measurement satellite. And you're listening to The Space Show. Every day, space satellites are measuring our planet's changing environment so that you, your business, and your local government can confidently plan for the future. Learn all about it on The Space Show, Wednesdays at 7pm. Stephen Hobbs is at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. He came to Melbourne and gave a talk at the Space Science Conference in 2016. And his, the topic of his talk was hands-off fieldwork. And he is doing a comparison of human and robotic methods of gathering terrain data using structure from motion. Well, I was there and recorded the talk. Uh, good afternoon. So I'll jump straight in. So structure from motion or SFM is a method of creating 3D surfaces using overlapping imagery. Um, what's really cool about SFM is you don't need complicated photogrammetric methods. You don't need consistent focal lengths. In theory, all you need is a number of ground control points and images that overlap. That's it, in theory. Uh, this uh, process has revolutionised everything it's touched, from archaeology through to monitoring um, beach boulder erosions and even climate science. Um, what I want to know is whether it will revolutionise planetary science. And to do that, need to characterise a number of dependencies. And these include if we're going to do it with ground-based vehicles, because it's very difficult to fly things on Mars and impossible to fly anything on the Moon, uh, looking at rover mobility, uh, camera height above the ground, time taken to complete the survey, and whether there is a dependence on the camera resolution that you're using. So what we did was chose a study site, um, a small one metre wide by eight metre long gully near where we lived, um, just a small erosive feature there, accessible uh, for reasonably mobile wheeled vehicles and reasonably analogous to some of the small scale erosive features that we would find on Mars. So these are the two rovers we used. Marsabot Junior on the left I went to New Zealand to the hot springs. Both vehicles are remote controlled. Uh, Junior was smaller and slightly less mobile than Little Blue, but it used a high resolution camera. Little Blue, slightly larger, but using a lower resolution first person video camera. Before we went to the gully, we did initial test setup using an object of known dimensions, i.e. a house brick. So something that I could physically measure and tie what the models were giving me to something in reality. Both rovers were driven around in a 360 degree circle, imaging the bricks at various dimensions. Then we performed the survey using a human-based survey, basically a person with a handheld camera, taking photographs of the bricks. 
We used uh, times taken to complete the survey, number of points captured in our 3D models, and the accuracy of the models themselves as metrics for success. So here's the results from the BRIC survey. Uh, the two images on the bottom are the uh, point clouds generated by the handheld survey, uh, very detailed. The handheld survey also had the smallest error, was able to generate the most detailed elevation model consisting of over 86,000 points and the time taken was less than half a minute. Going to the two rover surveys and immediately the time jumps up to an order of magnitude and these are teleoperated rovers by the, by the way, they're not semi-autonomous at all. And with Junior and then Little Blue, the number of points generated by the point clouds have dropped and the errors have jumped up. Uh, moving on to the gully now, so quick word on the setup. Uh, we used objects um, that could be identified in the point clouds, such as rocks. We set those at equidistant intervals, and that way we could tie our 3D models to a physical representation of the Earth's surface. Uh, we performed the surveys using the two rovers and also a handheld survey, similar to what we did for the house brick. I might mention here that we used an open source uh, photo modelling software package called uh, Photosynth for our point cloud generation. Uh, the image on the right hand side is one of the many mishaps um, that were suffered on conducting this survey. So here's a result uh, showing an overview of the traverses on the left. The green ellipse represents the uh, path taken by the human base survey. So mobility was no issue. We could walk where we wanted and take pictures of what we wanted. Uh, the blue line shows the uh, traverse uh, representation taken by little blue. Mobility is more restricted. We're able to drive up to the eastern side of the gully into the confluence and stop. The red line uh, is the shortest of all. This is the traverse taken by Junior, the least mobile of all rovers, and the best it could manage was a few metres along the eastern side of the gully. Uh, on the right-hand side is a DEM elevation model created by um, one of the point clouds, and the blue arrows are highlighting the positions of the uh, calibration stones that we use for our ground control points. Pink lines are showing some of the measurements we use to generate uh, error char characterisation. We used roughness as a metric to work out how detailed our DEM is. Um, the higher the roughness, the more complicated the elevation models. On the left-hand side, the handheld generated um, DEM one hands down uh, at a roughness of 57%. And we were, it was the highest resolution and we were able to see everything we photographed. Going to the rover with the next highest resolution camera, Junior, we're down to 13% roughness. So massive drop in complexity. And we're starting to experience visibility issues. So portions of the terrain that are hidden from the rover because the camera's not high enough. By the time we get down to Little Blue and the listing there, you're seeing we're down to 9%, uh, reflecting the low resolution um, of the camera. These results are echoed in analysis of the point clouds themselves. This is a handheld survey. It was the most accurate with an error of 0.26%. And the time, we're up to three whole minutes this time, and we're able to generate the most amount of points using this method. This is the junior results, so a lot less uh, little red dots than there were little blue dots for the uh, handheld survey and we're starting to see voids in our elevation. Those are areas where the 3D model was unable to be generated because the rover couldn't see uh, the surface. 
Little Blue, the story gets even sadder. Uh, this generated the fewest amount of points and the errors have jumped up from 0.26 to 6%. And looking at the times, uh, the times, as with the house brick, the times have absolutely blown out. So what we did in the interest of good science is we took the lessons learned and we visited, revisited the site. This time we chucked all the cameras away from the rovers and we used a standard GoPro Hero 16 megapixel camera uh, for all the rovers and used GPS uh, surveyed ground control points as our metrics and we included a larger rover this time, so the miner which stands about this high. Uh, we used Little Blue again to characterise a smaller rover and we treated ourselves to an upgrade of professional software called Photomodeler. We're not just generating tens of thousands of points anymore, we're generating millions and billions of points. Uh, on the right hand side you can see the times um, of the robots compared to the human based survey. Still quite sad, they're taking forever and a day. But when we actually start looking at the mobility, on the top right hand image you're seeing the green triangles which are the camera positions of the larger rover, the miner. Um, as you can see the larger rover was more mobile, we were able to cover more of the gully. Uh, top left hand image, a little blue, the blue triangles showing similar things. Not as mobile but we we're feeling a little bit more confident this time and we we're actually able to cover more of the gully than it, we did for the first survey. But what's really cool is looking in the centre of the elevation areas, we're getting differences in elevation between the human-based survey and the two robot surveys of under one centimetre. So when the rovers can actually physically see the terrain and we have high-resolution cameras and enough images, we're getting phenomenal accuracies. We're still getting visibility issues, so that eastern wall of the gully and behind the boulder where the smaller rover physically can't see. Um, so, and once we upgraded to photo model, we were able to generate more detailed point clouds. So what we showed was that increased number of images, increased camera resolution and increased camera height above the ground equals an increased accuracy for 3D models. So structure from motion will and is revolutionising field work. Um, every man his pet dog uses UAV based uh, methods for this. However, we've demonstrated that this uh, method is still useful for ground vehicles, such as when you've got no atmosphere and you can't fly. Uh, camera resolution, image coverage and height above ground are critical factors. Future models, we hope, will be able to develop onboard point cloud processing because you really do need a large number of images for this um, process to work. And solving the point cloud model onboard will save you having to transmit hundreds of images to a ground station. And the proliferation of single board computers we've seen in recent years, this is going to be a question of when, not if. Uh, future SFM methods may also be useful for autonomous navigation and also for search and rescue environments um, in a terrestrial application. Speaking in Melbourne, that was Stephen Hobbs from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And I do wonder whether the people who are designing our Australian moon rover have been in contact to uh, get his expertise. On FM, online and on TuneIn 24-7, this is 88.3 Southern FM. Well, let's have a listen now to what the European Space Agency plans to do this year. 
As 2022 is dawning, the European Space Agency readies itself for another year filled with exciting missions, new milestones in human spaceflight, and cutting-edge science. At the end of 2021, the long-anticipated James Webb Space Telescope was launched from Kourou on top of an Ariane 5. This new space telescope is a partnership between ESA, NASA, and CSA. In 2022, during the first five months of the telescope's operational life, the data from the Early Release Science Initiative will be sent back to Earth. This data will be made available immediately, providing the entire scientific community with early access. Another look at our universe will come from the full Gaia Data Release 3 in the first half of 2022, adding to what is already the richest star map of our galaxy and beyond. Closer to home, Solar Orbiter will get within a distance of 50 million kilometers to the Sun for another close pass in March. This will offer a significant boost to the science that can be done, and a plethora of new data is to be expected. In the future, Solar Orbiter will also provide scientists with the first good look at the Sun's polar region. For science, the planned launch of ESA's ExoMars 2022 mission will be another milestone sending the European rover, Rosalind Franklin, and a Russian surface platform to the Red Planet. Looking for signs of past life, the rover is the first mission to be able to roam across the planet and drill down to a depth of two meters into the planet's surface. The launch and early orbit phase of the mission will be spearheaded from ESA's main control room at ESOC in Germany, and is bringing together expertise in mission control, deep space communication, interplanetary navigation and flight dynamics. In Europe, a combination unique to ESA. In human spaceflight, German ESA astronaut Matthias Maurer will return to Earth after his six-month cosmic KISS mission on board the ISS. By then, Matthias will have supported many experiments from orbit, advancing our knowledge in areas ranging from human health to material sciences. The end of his mission might even have a bit of an overlap with the new mission of his fellow ESA astronaut, Samantha Cristoforetti. Samantha will launch to the ISS in the spring of 2022 for her second long-duration mission on board the ISS. Her first mission, called Futura, made her the first Italian woman in space. Both Matthias and Samantha can only be seen as a source of inspiration for the new class of astronauts ESA will be introducing in the autumn of 2022. These new astronauts will have been selected from a pool of over 23,000 candidates who applied in 2021. In addition, ESA is planning to select an astronaut with a physical disability for the Parastronaut Feasibility Project. The selected astronauts might even become the first Europeans to set foot on the Moon, a goal ESA aims to achieve before the end of the decade. To make this ambition a reality, ESA continues to work closely with NASA on the Artemis program by providing the European service modules which are integrated with the Orion capsules. The uncrewed maiden flight of the new spacecraft Artemis One is scheduled for later this year while the preparations for the crewed Artemis II continue. Another step closer towards a first European step on the Moon. Europe's lightweight launcher Vega-C is also poised to make its inaugural flight in 2022. Launched from Europe's spaceport in Kourou and taking over from the original Vega, Vega-C will be more powerful and have a larger and more versatile payload capacity. 
Meanwhile, preparation for Europe's new heavyweight launcher Ariane 6 continue in anticipation of the rocket's maiden flight. Both new launchers are important for ESA and Europe to maintain independent access to space. Whereas the exploration of space, the planets in our solar system and the moon are all important, the exploration and observation of Earth is of equal if not of even greater importance. In 2022, ESA continues the development of a new generation of Earth explorers, such as FLEX, Biomass and Earth Care, to better understand and monitor our planet. ESA also continues to collaborate with the European Union, developing six new Sentinel satellites for the Copernicus expansion missions, adding to the largest Earth observation program in the world. Another satellite soon to be observing our Earth from space is the first third-generation Meteosat that is to be launched from Europe's spaceport in 2022. This geostationary weather satellite has been developed in cooperation with UMETSAT. Protecting our planet also means scanning the heavens for potentially dangerous asteroids, a task for ESA's new Fly-Eye Telescope, which will be assembled and tested at the Assi Matera facility in Italy during the year. In 2022, ESA's Directorate of Telecommunications and Integrated Applications will continue to support European industry to innovate and succeed in the highly competitive global market for telecommunications satellites by offering its expertise, experience and its reputation for reliability. It also develops space-enabled connectivity through next-generation 5G connections. ESA remains ambitious as ever. The Intermediate Ministerial Meeting in 2021 was a milestone on the road to the European Space Summit to be held in Toulouse, France in February 2022, ahead of ESA's next Council Meeting at Ministerial level later in the year. With the need to accelerate the use of space and make space for Europe, ESA has a responsibility towards all citizens in Europe to make them part of the future of space and to align this future with the digital and green transitions. I'm holding in my hand a copy of a poster that was presented to the Australian Space Science Conference. It's titled Assessment of the Efficacy of Global Ionospheric Maps to Improve the Performance of Precise Point Positioning. I spoke to the author of that poster and uh, that's Naveen Kodakara, when I was there at RMIT University. Welcome to the Space Show. Uh, you've done an, a poster here. What's it all about? Um, yeah, so this is, um, uh, as you have heard um, in the past couple of days, there were uh, quite a bit of um, presentations about uh, precise point positioning. This, this paper really does um, a, a, a very simple thing. PPP is a, a, a very um, cost-efficient positioning technique. It only needs one, uh, one uh, receiver uh, to, to get the precise position. Uh, when I say precise, it means down to like five centimeter level precision or even less. But there's one hitch. It takes about 30 minutes or even one, one to two hours to, for, the, for the solution to converge. But the theory says if we if we can precisely include the ionosphere in the algorithm we can get instantaneous uh, position uh, solutions 
So in here, we are, uh, there's a global ionos uh, ionosphere map available. What we are doing here is including uh, include global ionospheric measurements in our, in our PPP solution and see, okay, is the convergence time improved? So down here, you see the results. We actually don't see a big improvement in convergence time. Uh, the best we got was about about 20 minutes still and it's 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 really not a big improvement the the solution we came uh, the, the the conclusion we came to is the the honest for a correction that the gym provided was not accurate enough because it has to give a correction better than the code noise of the of the satellite signal and in this case it didn't that's what we are we are showing here and on the other side you see the 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 overall position accuracies we got. So the position accuracies were really good. We got down to about 10 centimeters in the in the in the horizontal uh, accuracies, like latitude and longitude accuracies. So um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, work to do and 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 to you know really go down to gym measurements and and find out well, how we can improve the the gym corrections. So who would uh, want to know their position to that accuracy? Oh, uh, actually, that's a really, really good question. One of the biggest motivation for this kind of studies is, is also the users, because in Australia, uh, two years ago, the statistics says only 9% is, is covered with, with this kind of uh, precise positioning um, uh, uh, precise positioning accuracy you know uh, so uh, to repeat that statement only in uh, only in um, nine percent in the land uh, uh, how to put it so only nine percent of the land is covered or only nine percent in the land that we can provide this kind of solution so it is a big big problem because Australia is kind of losing like billions of dollars if we cannot compete with uh, with uh, with this ability to provide provide uh, highly precise solutions it's down to like you know uh, global cross uh, crustal movement people and also uh, gps meteorology and uh, people who monitor low earth low earth orbit satellites it's it's all very important for for everyone to have really precise uh, position solutions and you're at rmit university yes i am what, what sort of role do you have there uh so i'm uh, just a new uh, phd student yeah i'm 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 a phd researcher that's that's what i am <laughs> well thanks for joining us on the space show thank you thank you so much that was Naveen Kotakara, and um, it's interesting to note that in a recent federal budget, many millions of dollars were, were allocated to improving our global positioning system here in Australia. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Planet Earth. You're looking at Planet Earth. Bop, 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 bop. This is Planet Earth. 
Welcome to episode 30 of our Planet Earth series, in which we look at our home planet. And tonight we are taking a detailed examination of the Tropics mission. Nothing can ruin a vacation quite like stormy weather. Luckily, NASA is launching Tropics, a collection of six small satellites specially designed to help scientists better understand damaging tropical storms and hurricanes. These small but mighty satellites each have a miniaturized microwave radiometer that peers through clouds and inside developing storms. Traveling in pairs in three different orbits, Tropics will provide near-hourly observations of a storm's precipitation, temperature, and humidity. Collectively, Tropics will be able to observe Earth's surface more frequently than current weather satellites making similar measurements. This will give scientists and forecasters more data to help them understand how damaging tropical storms form, grow, and intensify. In June 2021, the first Tropics Proof of Concept satellite launched, collecting important data that showed the promise of these small satellites to help us prepare for the weather ahead. Some satellites are so big they need their own dedicated rocket to loft them into space. Others are small and will share the ride to space with other satellites. NASA's Tropics Pathfinder is small, so was a rideshare with 88 satellites aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket on June the 30th last year. Now, Tropics is an acronym for Time Resolved Observations of Precipitation Structure and Storm Intensity with a Constellation of Small Sats. <laughs> Where do they think of those acronyms? Uh, this satellite was a test, a pathfinder of what will become a constellation of satellites, as you've just heard in that feature. The problem when you get dumped into orbit with 88 satellites is figuring out which one is yours. Now, this NASA satellite was controlled by the Lincoln Laboratory of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Finding and identifying Tropics Pathfinder was a major initial challenge. The laboratory team worked with other satellite operators to execute a coordinated and systematic search. Contact was established on July the 1st, indicating that the satellite was alive and had properly initialized. Subsequent communication with the satellite confirmed that all was well. As a pathfinder, the mission is intended to test the technology, communications systems, data processing and data flow that will be used in the full Tropics mission. And that launch is scheduled for later this year. There will be six small satellites, each carrying a miniaturized microwave radiometer to collect high-frequency temperature and humidity soundings that will help scientists understand the development and intensity of tropical cyclones. Under certain conditions, tropical cyclones undergo rapid intensification. Sometimes they increase wind speeds by as much as 160 kilometers per hour in under two days. Current scientific models struggle to accurately predict such rapid development. 
Because there will be six tropic satellites, there will be frequent revisit views of the cyclone. Indeed, the observations of any particular storm will be near hourly. With improved models, improved cyclone intensity forecasts will be possible. Missions like tropics don't just happen. It took six years from when the mission was first proposed by William Blackwell of the Lincoln Laboratory. On current satellites, microwave radiometers are about the size of a washing machine. Blackwell and his team have been able to shrink this instrument to about the size of a coffee mug. Microwave radiometers work by detecting the radiation naturally emitted by oxygen and water vapor in the air. The Tropics Pathfinder had its first big test at the end of August when it observed Hurricane Ida as it made landfall in Louisiana. Imagery showed detailed storm structure with a well-defined eye wall and inner rain band and a prominent outer rain band. Outer rain bands are often associated with tornadoes at landfall and are thus important to observe accurately. The onboard microwave cross-track sounder operates at three different frequencies. The 91 gigahertz is sensitive to water vapor. The 115 gigahertz provides measurements of temperature at the Earth's surface and in the lower atmosphere. And finally, the 205 GHz yields measurements of the precipitation-sized ice particles contained within clouds. Well, in December last year, William Blackwell, who, as I said, is the principal investigator of the tropics mission at the MIT Lincoln Laboratory, uh, he gave an overview of tropics. Hi everyone, I am Bill Blackwell. I am the principal investigator of the Tropics mission, which is part of the NASA Earth Venture portfolio. And the objective of Tropics is to measure tropical cyclones with uh, much improved revisit rates. So we can capture the dynamics of the tropical cyclones as they're evolving and intensifying. And the, the reason we need to do a better job at this is so we can improve the forecasting of the, uh, of the intensification and the tracks of where the hurricanes will go and that will aid, of course, in disaster management, helping people get out of the way uh, of these very severe storms. So it's a constellation of six very small CubeSat satellites that will orbit the Earth and provide revisit rates better than 60 minutes. So the key observables that we need to measure from space uh, are as follows. So first is the humidity profile. So the, uh, the amount of, of moisture in the air as the function of altitude and space around the storm uh, really tells us how the storm might intensify. This warm, moist air is really the engine that drives the storm. Uh, so we need to measure that uh, with, with very high resolution and with very high temporal update. You'll see that the next observable is temperature. So this is a, a cross-section of the temperature profile through the eye of the hurricane. And an interesting feature here is that there's a warming aloft in the core of the hurricane. And this is highly correlated to the intensity of the hurricane and how it might further intensify. So we need to measure this in three dimensions and with high revisit. Precipitation is another thing we need to measure with very high resolution. Uh, we need to measure the intensity of the rainfall, the structure of the rain bands. Uh, is there asymmetry uh, spiraling off from the eye? That tells us things. So these three things together uh, give us a complete picture of the storm that we can measure remotely from 
these very small satellites in four dimensions. So we've been making these measurements from space uh, for many years. Uh, so NOAA flies a fleet of polar, polar orbiting satellites uh, that work very well. They have a, a, a number of instruments on board that make exquisite measurements across the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, but these satellites are, are fairly large and expensive and take a long time to build. Uh, and the regret of that is we don't have very many of them. So we need to wait on the order of four hours before the next satellite orbits the storm. Um, so that's a pretty large gap. We miss all the dynamics is happening over that time scale. So a new approach is to augment and complement that network with a series of smaller, more affordable satellites. We can fly more of them. Um, so the tropic satellites are smaller. They cost on the order of a million dollars a piece. And by flying more of them, in the case of tropic six, we can get that revisit time down below an hour. And that's where we can really start to, to, to say something about how these storms are forming and evolving and intensifying on those rapid time scales. We can also infuse very new technologies uh, to make the, the best uh, measurements that we can with very high fidelity, very rapidly. So the Tropics mission uh, is, is, a, is a partnership with a number of uh, partners here with NASA, NOAA, uh, Wisconsin, and others on the science team that are helping us put this together for NASA. Uh, these cross-track scanning microwave radiometers measure in 12 channels spanning 90 to 205 gigahertz. Uh, with those frequencies, we can measure the temperature and the moisture and the precipitation that we need uh, to inform the variables that I discussed earlier. Now, these are very small satellites. The picture in the lower right gives you a sense of that. They're about uh, you know, a foot long and, and 10 pounds, about the size of a loaf of bread. Uh, but they're very capable uh, instruments that provide very high fidelity uh, measurements that I'll show you here. So six of these will launch in the Constellation next year. But we've actually launched in June of this year, a seventh satellite that we built. This is our qualification unit that we wanted to put up early in advance of the constellation to give us an opportunity to check out all the aspects of the mission, the ground communication, processing, science. Uh, and that has provided some very spectacular imagery uh, that I'll discuss here in a second. So the, the constellation will launch um, in beginning in March of next year and Astrospace will be providing the launches. And that was William Blackwell the principal investigator of tropics. And uh, here's another feature about the tropics mission. Each no more than a foot long help improve forecasts for tropical storms and hurricanes? Let's take a look. Hurricanes are some of the most powerful and destructive weather events on Earth. The 2020 Atlantic hurricane season was one of the most brutal on record, producing a record-breaking 30 named storms What's more, 10 of those storms were characterized as rapidly intensifying, some throttling up by 100 miles per hour in under two days. Many weather satellites will generally measure a storm only once every few hours, leaving gaps in coverage where a storm may quickly strengthen. To help fill this observation gap, NASA is launching Tropics, a collection of six small satellites designed to make a big impact on our understanding of damaging storms. Their mission? To provide near-hourly observations of a storm's precipitation, temperature, and humidity, allowing scientists to better understand what drives a storm's intensification. To achieve this, researchers at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory developed a miniaturized microwave radiometer that's about the size of a cup of coffee. This small instrument will measure storm strength by detecting the thermal radiation naturally emitted by the oxygen and water vapor in the air. As Earth's climate continues to change, cost-effective but powerful satellites like Tropics will be an important tool to help us better observe developments driving rapid changes in powerful storms.
and help forecasters better predict and prepare for the weather ahead. Something for us to look forward to this year. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. You're listening to The Space Show, which is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Uh, we are a non-profit, non-political group of space enthusiasts and uh, we like to learn about what's happening in space and share with people like yourself the excitement of what's happening there. So if you'd like some more information about the association or the issues we've discussed in the program, then um, you, you could contact us in a number of ways. You could visit our website, which is space.asn.au. I'll say that again, space.asn.au. And uh, there you can find a, a contact to uh, send us emails or whatever, join up, find out what our next meetings are. We do hold free public meetings. That's F-R-E-E, no charge, public meetings uh, once a month. And we also present this radio program here on 88.3 Southern FM. So uh, please please get in contact. Now, the Space Show does have a home on the Internet. It is space.southernfm.com.au. I'll say that again. Space.southernfm.com.au. And there you can find more than 1,800 features for your listening enjoyment and a few photographs to go with it as well. So once again, we invite you to visit space.southernfm.com.au to find out about the Space Show and space.asn.au to find out about the Space Association. So, uh, oh, we did a, uh, a series on Apollo 11 way back in 2019 uh, to mark the 50th anniversary of the first human landing on the moon. And uh, there were 230 files in that. So we covered the whole eight days of the mission, and you can find them there zipped up. And uh, if you download them and unzip them, <laughs> you've got many hours of enjoyment available to you. Well... I think it's just about time for us to sign off here on the space show. Uh, 